So what I wanted to do this morning uh, is continue, conclude most likely, uh, the topic that I launched into two weeks ago, uh, which was the Dogen fascicle from Shobogenzo uh, titled The Awesome Presence of Active Buddhas. So where I'd like to pick up today is with his statement that active Buddhas allow everyday activities to practice. I could probably build a whole talk around that. And I guess in essence, I've got to do just that, only I'll be bringing some more uh, statements of Dogen's into it. But uh, what a beautiful summation of what it is that we do when we're active Buddhas. Allowing everyday practices, everyday activities to practice. So it's pointing at the risk of falling into our normal dualistic mind, but they're really, it seems there are two qualities of, of, uh, of our practice being designated here, pointed to, and that's the fact that they are active. There is activity involved, hence we call it practice. But the everyday quality is pointing to the fact that it's nothing special. It's not something elevated in that way. It's just our ordinary life. And our ordinary life is active. So we're pointing to this basic truth of Buddhism that keeps slipping through our hands all too often, though, is that it is active. Because we have this really strong tendency, maybe a need, to hold on to things. And that act of holding on is to bring things to a stop. You know, I'm going to be re referencing a little later in this talk a poem that figured more prominently during the first part of my uh, treatment of this fascicle by the Polish uh, poet, uh, Wyslawa Simborska. And she uh, wrote a poem that she titled Allegro Manon Trapo, which is a tempo marking in music that it means fast but not too much so and i think our our uh proclivity to to want to freeze things to grasp onto things 
is uh, is maybe a few notches slower than than what that title is is talking about. But maybe that title, uh, and I think this is probably true, is talking about maybe the best we can hope to slow things down. Reality is active. We, as part of that reality, are active. Buddha nature is active. It's constantly in motion. Even if we're just sitting still doing zaza, we are moving. Uh, our life functions continue when we're sitting. Our thought functions, truth be told, continue. <laughs> Although there's this sense that, oh no, that that's not good zaza. Then, you know, that's that's another. See this this tendency we have that we need to stop all that stuff. No, it's about being active. It's about our everyday activities, but it's about practice. So it's that's the added element. So it's it's not it's 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 our everyday activities, but then it, it's not in a way too. And this is what points to this awesome presence, that we can see somebody engaged in an activity. And, and we can have that experience, maybe more importantly, ourselves, when we recognize it is an awesome presence, what we're doing. And other times, it's not. So that's, that's an important aspect of the practice is just to investigate that. And you know, one of the beautiful things about the practice is that just by investigating, by practicing mindfulness, for instance, you're there. You open that space of, of awesome presence. So it's easy even though it seems so difficult sometimes. Why can't I do it? Why do I keep reverting back to my standard ways of, of just uh, my habitual approach to things? So basic principle here, active Buddhas allow everyday activities to practice. which means we allow activity to take place. It's part of this not picking and choosing, not having a fixed idea about what it is. Dogen goes on to say that this is, is essentially to abandon your body for dharma. Because this act of allowing everyday activities to practice means we're, we're letting go of our need to, to be in total control. Abandon your body for Dharma. But at the same time, in classic Dogen fashion, the reverse is true as well. 
we're abandoning dharma for your body. So we don't get caught by either side. And I think that's one of the hallmarks of Dogen's contribution to the dharma was how he would constantly uh, do such a wonderful job of bringing us to that middle point between two practices, between two ways of seeing things. Because we do view things dualistically. It's natural. So his, his medicine, medical treatment for that seems to be quite effective, that, that that's okay as long as, as you, you see it from both sides. And maybe even understand that they're far more than just those, both, those two sides. That we have this propensity to see things dualistically, but sometimes we can see things in their richer diversity. So, and, and finally on this topic, he has a very important statement to, to share with us when he says, this letting go is unlimited. This is the continuous practice he talks about. It's unlimited. It's ongoing. So if we unwind that a little bit further, he then says, do not hold out the mind measure, which is our use of our concepts. All of our formulas, mathematical, verbal, all of our ways of measuring do not hold out the mind measure to grope for and deliberate about the awesome presence. The awesome presence is beyond comprehension on any level. To comprehend is to miss it. So that's my opening to, uh, to reference the jazz musician Wayne Shorter, who's much in my mind uh, because just Friday night, uh, the SF Jazz Center, which a number of us have been to a few times, well, at least uh, Cynthia and Chris and Keith, uh, yeah, beautiful jazz venue in, uh, in, in downtown San Francisco. And since they're closed, like all other musical venues, uh, they've been doing for uh, the exorbitant price of $5 a month, they're, uh, they're doing hour-long uh, concert videos from, from uh, last year's concerts. And there was a, a week that was that where Wayne Shorter and his quartet were gonna be there, but Wayne had, had some significant health issues. So they, they brought in some other 
prominent uh, musicians to take his place, but the rest of his quartet uh, was, was there throughout. And Wayne Shorter is a practicing Buddhist, uh, and there's, there's a beautiful documentary about him called The Language of the Unknown, which is about this giving up the mind measure. And you know, I've, I had the privilege of seeing him with that quartet perform on three different occasions, and it really was a profound spiritual experience each and every time. You just kind of get tingly when they come out on stage because you didn't know what was going to happen. They didn't know what was going to happen. That was his whole approach, was was just coming out and they would weave in and out of various compositions of him. He's been writing music for 50 plus years. So he's, he's got an extensive uh, book uh, to work from. But, but yeah, it was really, they were just places to, to kind of uh, pass through. And so he was he would be an example of this this uh, awesome presence of active buddhas he and his quartet who were very much letting go this kind of radical letting go and trusting what came forth with no expectations and as Dogen says, measuring does not hit the mark, is not useful, and cannot be gauged. Don't enter into your life with an expectation of what will make it a worthwhile life. Life in itself is so rich and awesome which is why it's an everyday practice it's just our ordinary activities this is where active buddhas engage the practice we encountered that during our study of the Diamond Sutra, the very beginning of that sutra. Kind of the linchpin that launches the whole thing is just the description of the Buddha. A typical day. Going out on alms rounds. Coming back, having his meal. Taking care of things. And then sitting. And then someone comes up and asks a question and launches us into the Diamond Sutra. But the real practice, what was being taught in all those what, 32 sections of the Diamond Sutra, was the truth that the Buddha had practiced before the question got posed. Just the ordinary activities of his day. It was all encompassed in just that. So the sense of awe 
which is why I do like the uh, the translation of of Kaz Tanahashi and and Tiger and Dan Layton uh, comes out in this next quote to thoroughly understand that in the awesome presence and Dogen. Uh, switches them around, and the presence of awe, the awesome presence, the presence of awe. In that, the great way is wide open. So there's no groping, measuring, it's wide open. Like when the Wayne Shorter Quartet would take the stage. What was going to happen? Wide open. Wide open. Which also points, as we, those, those of you that uh, join us on Thursdays, uh, David Loy brings uh, the, the poetry of William Blake. Uh, into play occasionally. And of course, Blake was, was is, is uh, arguably best known for bringing the infinite, combining it with the smallest items of our experience. The infinity is all around us. The great way is wide open. So we encounter it in our everyday activity. Because the great way is active. Impermanence, interdependence. Wide open. So Dogen occasionally could get an edge to him, and he does in this next passage that, uh, that I'd like to share with you. When he says, do not accept as children of the Buddha any groups who regard mere human views as the Buddha Dharma, or who limit Buddha Dharma to human dharmas. Our conceptual ideas about what is what it is, what we can talk about in our usual analytical way of, of expressing things. Again, pointing back to this groping for, holding out the mind measure. This is not the awesome presence. The awesome presence means stepping into that great way that's wide open. This is the Buddha Dharma. The other stuff is just human views, human Dharma, limited. And from that place, it, it becomes a hindrance, an obstruction to seeing the awesome nature. 
So we need to give up that, that compulsion we seem to have to, met, to bring the mind measure out. to get something that we can hold on to. That's kind of what truth is seen as being. That's why we, we seek it. It's then we've got our foundation. So Buddhism is is having, it's not that you don't have a foundation. Because actually the next uh, quote from Dogen I was gonna share with you talks about how we're totally encompassed by Buddhas. This is why we, we uh, so much of our ritual entails, you know, honoring the Buddhas, the ancestors, those who encompass our practice. But they do that in an active way, which is why the focus is always on the living Buddha, the active Buddha, the vital Buddha. These are the Buddhas that totally encompass us and guide us. Whether it's us in our ordinary life or it's the Wayne Shorter Quartet, just going from passage to passage in a 90-minute concert. What's going to happen next? They're totally encompassed by their jazz ancestors, by their experiences, by their technical abilities on their instruments, total, totally encompassed. But as active Buddhas, as Dogen puts it, they're free from obstruction as they penetrate the vital path of being splattered by mud and soaked in water. Back to the ordinary stuff, the stuff we generally would see as the obstructions, the stuff we would walk around. Oh, there's some muddy water up ahead. I need to give that a wide berth. This is our vital path, though. Of course. Muddy water is a metaphor much used in Zen in relation to the lotus. So we all get that, we get that. And that that's where our practice takes place. So, is as I wrap up, there are a few other that that's all I had to share with you from this fascicle.
of the awesome presence of active Buddhas. But there are some other uh, pieces, starting with a piece by Dogen and then uh, several commentators that I also wanted to, to share with you before I uh, wrap up with uh, uh, the final verse of uh, the Symborska poem that I talked referenced. Uh, beginning with uh, a Dogen fascicle that we actually looked at a couple of years ago uh, during a, I think it was a December Sashin, and that was Busho or Buddha nature, one of the uh, very uh, important, much studied fascicles of Dogen. And in there, uh, kind of connected to what I just talked about. Uh, in terms of this vital path and being splattered by mud and soaked in water, he says completely utilizing life, we cannot be held back by life. So these places where we often see or think that obstructions are happening, yeah, it's just the mud and water of your practice completely utilize it. That's your practice. You can't be held back by it. You can hold yourself back by your human dharma, your limited views. But it's not the mud and the water. Because we're the ones that create that view of it. Just as soon as we say those words, mud in particular. Because mud connotes the watery element. It's kind of squishy. Get all over you. And you got to clean up. And you know, in Bouchot, he makes this very real for us. So to utilize life and, and see that we cannot be held back by life, that's one side of the equation. He also says completely utilizing death, we cannot be bothered by death. That's the real big duality. In a manner of speaking, you know, could probably say that uh, all of the others uh, trace their existence back to that one. But they are where our life is, where the Buddha nature is. What is it to be human? A key piece to that is the awareness of our mortality. If we didn't have that, we'd be something very different than what we are because of that awareness. So both clinging and attachment to life and shrinking and in abhorrence from death is not Buddhism, Dogen's words. This is part of this awesome presence of active Buddhas, of the active Buddha field that we are in. 
it encompasses these states that we refer to as life and death, birth and death. So there's uh, a, a work by Carl Bielfeld, a Buddhist scholar who was based uh, not far from Jokoji at Stanford University. Uh, and he wrote a very important work on Dogen, uh, uh, Dogen's Manuals of Zen Meditation. So this was an early uh, text that I uh, looked at uh, when I started the practice. And he, th this is Bielfeld's comment about our, pra our fundamental practice of Zazen, that it's nothing but the pr primordial activity of all things the great way, always present, even before we recognize it, always functioning throughout the world around us. Zazen, nothing but this primordial activity. Primordial means existing from the beginning of time. It's always been here before we recognized it. Kind of like gravity always existed before Newton recognized it, right? That didn't mean that all of a sudden it popped into existence and started to exert its force on, on things. So this prim primordial activity of all things, which is our zazen, is just allowing us to sit and enter into that, which we're always in. But this time when we, when we do zazen, we're settling into it. Whereas a teacher would put it to me, it's when we're turning the Dharma wheel rather than being turned by the Dharma wheel. We, we're, we're open, openly entering it. And seeing, and this is the next statement by Bielfeld, that the activity of Buddha nature itself is ultimately speaking, no mere human exercise. It's not my practice. It's not a practice unique to humans. And of course, Dogen was a real uh, strong uh, advocate of that view. that all beings 
our Buddha nature. It's not limited to any particular segment of being. All beings. So this is the activity of Buddha nature is all around us. So another uh, important commentator of Dogen, Hijin Kim, who uh, wrote a book. He's got a couple of books out, but this, this is the one that's best known. Uh, Mystical Realist, Ehe Dogen, Mystical Realist by Hijin Kim. And when I first uh, started practicing and heard about it, it, it was out of print. So I'd go in, uh, on Amazon and the book was selling for like a hundred bucks or something. I figured, well, you know, I, I want to learn about Dogen, but <laughs> well, maybe I'll wait. And lo and behold, it ends up uh, uh, coming back into print with a foreword by Tig and Dan Layton. So I figured, hey. <laughs> This is awesome. This is awesome presence for sure. <laughs> and uh, he has has uh, some comments to make about this topic that we're we're looking at this morning. He says that activity and Buddhahood are non-dualistically one and the same. Activity and Buddhahood. which is one of the reasons why I've never been much for, for Buddhist iconography, you know, all these statues. I don't know. It's, and yeah, there are centers, as I've commented in the past, that don't use those on their altar. They... They're not necessarily a problem, but they just kind of run counter to this sense of activity and Buddhahood. So I understand where other religions are resistant to iconography. I get that. I get that. Because, and Kim goes on to make the point, Buddha and Dharma both can become bonds as dangerous and sinister as the bonds of ignorance. I think you know, some points we looked at uh, from, from Dogen himself, uh, help to demonstrate you know when it's when it's the human view of buddha the human view of dharma where they become limited we put boundaries around them then they they become bonds and they prevent us we can call them bonds because they prevent us from freely entering into the great way. 
because we have the notion of the section of the way we're looking to go into. It's the way where the Dharma is, where the Buddha is. And we've just bound ourselves up. We can't enter the great way now. And when Dogen referred to the historical and eternal Buddhas, our lineage of Buddhas, from Vairochana to Shakyamuni, he meant the active Buddha. Not some fixed Buddha figure. Not the bobblehead Buddha in modern parlance, right? And, and with Dogen's view, it expanded even more so. The conception of the active Buddha expanded to cosmic dimensions in Dogen's view. So I think Dogen, were he alive today, uh, might have become an astrophysicist certainly brilliant enough and he might have found that as the, the best way for exploring uh, the, uh, the great way because he did have that sense clearly of, of Buddha nature and cosmic nature being one and the same. So I think he'd be thrilled with, with where we've gone in that thing. And the fact that the further we go, the uh, the less fixed things are from from newtonian physics to quantum mechanics to to multiple worlds views of reality it's uh breathtaking definitely makes me feel like i'm part part of the great way <laughs> it's a, a beautiful time to to be practicing with all this going on as support, being encompassed by these active Buddhas in my practice. And then finally, uh, a teacher, uh, several of whose books I, I have, and he, he was very involved in uh, interfaith work, especially with Christianity, but also Judaism. Uh, and in fact, going back a number of years, I remember uh, Sashin, where Wayne and I co-taught, and uh, a book of Abe's about that, uh, interfaith uh, relationship between Buddhism and Christianity figured pretty prominently in it, where, where uh, Abe was looking at, at a notion within Christianity and their view of God uh, as kind of this, uh, this creative force, kenosis was the uh, Latin term used to describe it, a lot like shunyata. But uh, Abe's also uh, 
uh, Dogen scholar and uh, and wrote a book. I don't have that one handy, but he wrote a book on Dogen studies, I think was the title of it. And uh, he talks with reference to the uh, awesome presence of active Buddhas. He's, his uh, description of it is uh, that it's an explanation of the significance of expressing the way as effortless naturalness for the problem of birth and death. That, that this is what's clearly being shown in that fascicle, the awesome presence of active Buddhas. That we are expressing the way with our lives, that they're not frozen by teachings. It's in everything we do. It's something we express in no less a way than what the Wayne Shorter Quartet does or for any of you that did uh, access that film, uh, Being in the World, there, there was a jazz uh, combo that was part of, part of what they were laying out, but there were other uh, artists, craftsmen as well, one of whom was uh, uh, this chef from New Orleans who, who, like any good chef, you know, she wasn't limited by, by the dharma of cooking. You know, she just kind of expressed it. It was an act of expression. And her practice was encompassed by her ancestors, literally. Her mom had been a, a, a chef passed teachings down to her and then she freely gave expression expressing the way there was a japanese carpenter also just freely expressing the way of woodworking how do you practice with wood And the effortless naturalness hearkening back to not groping, not measuring. This is what makes it seem effortless. And there's a, a natural quality to it. And there's a tension. Just to, to, to use music as, as an example, there's a tension between the mastery of an instrument and, and being able to freely express because you want to do it right. There's a lot of pressure as you're learning. But all too often what can happen is, and we can probably relate to this, most of us, I know I can, uh, that as we go through life, we put so much emphasis on, you know, learning it to do things right, that it kind of freezes us up and can prevent us from being able then to take that capability that we've, we've mastered in some degree or another, and then use it to freely express. 
Rather, we're constantly groping and measuring against the right way that I was taught. So effortless naturalness doesn't negate the importance of, of attaining that mastery by drill and by being evaluated, things, mistakes that are being made. But yet at the end of that process, to be able to trust yourself, have faith in yourself, to go forth and practice without the straitjacket, without the constant measurement. Am I doing it right this time? In fact, back in my uh, days of, of uh, putting on a few jazz gigs around town, uh, one of the earlier ones I did was uh, a pianist, Kenny Werner, who wrote uh, a, a very important text that's, that's used pretty widely in jazz studies programs. And the title of the book is Effortless Mastery. And that's what he was uh, working towards is he, he himself being a jazz educator had the direct experience of working with young people who were trying to master what quite often could be a challenging technical skill set. And there's a, a, so there's a lot of tension that builds up and focus on be doing things the right way. So his text was an attempt to, to soften that to the point where they wouldn't lose the ability as a result to have this effortless naturalness in their performance. That they could come through the training and not be permanently scarred by it is another way of expressing it, I guess. So with that, if, if Keith, uh, if you've got the Symborska, are we able to do that? Oh, good. good. And so the entire left side we covered last time. So we're not going to look at that. <laughs> but it's a beautiful poem. Uh, and actually, before I start in, I should mention that uh, that Symborska, the, the poet, uh, factored into a jazz recording, a CD, by one of my favorite uh, jazz trumpet players who died himself a few years ago, Tomas Stanko. And Stanko was Polish, so when Symborska died, he decided to do, make a recording uh, that he titled Symborska, the whole CD, uh, kind of his homage to her. Uh, so she also posthumously has that relationship to the jazz world. Uh, just a, a really beautiful poet. So I, uh, 
recommend uh, her work to you if, if you're disposed towards poetry. But the, so the final verse on the right side, uh, I wanted to end this morning by, by looking at, uh, I tug at life by its leaf hem. Will it stop for me just once? Momentarily forgetting to what end it runs and runs. So pointing to this, what, what I was uh, describing uh, at the very beginning of the talk, this, this groping, this measuring mind, trying to, to get a handle on things that are in constant motion. Will it stop for me just once? And the opening line really touched me a lot because just my own association, when I read that, I tug at life by its leaf M, uh, couldn't help but call to my mind the, uh, the beautiful story in, uh, in the, I think it's the book of Mark uh, in the Bible, the New Testament uh, about Jesus and, uh, his being called to uh, to heal this woman who had what I, I believe was like a, a, a fatal disease. Uh, and they had heard about Jesus' great powers to heal, so they uh, prevailed upon him to come come and see her see her. And uh, when he arrived, all she did was just, not to tug at the hem, like in this poem, but just to touch the hem of his robe. And the point was you know, that that was sufficient. She understood Jesus and that she didn't need to do anything more. She didn't need Jesus to do anything more. That was enough, she touched the hem. Now, I don't know if Samborska had that in mind with this, but to this notion of tugging at life by its leaf hem. Different approach. Different approach. So it kind of sets the whole thing out right from the opening line. Touching the hem and tugging at. Will you stop for me just once? So that's uh, kind of wraps up everything I had. So I guess, Keith, if we can open it up. Only muted by themselves now. Okay, okay. Yeah, I wanted to um, to say, Dean. Uh, first off, uh, thank you for your talk, and uh, it's great to see everybody this morning. 
Um, so um, during the big beginning of your talk, when you were talking about, um, you know, how our, our practices, our activity, our daily activity, um, I was thinking about um, this, uh, this um, analogy of uh, the definition of art that, that, you know, art can be very ordinary things like Andy Warhol's, you know, Campbell's soup can until we point to it and say, ah, this is art. Um, and certainly artists assemble, you know, common things to create works of art. And it's like that, I think, with our art, with our, with our life and our practice, that we go about our daily activities, but we can point to those activities and say, ah, this is, this is beyond just ordinary activity. Um, this is art, this is life. And, um, and then I think something else happens after that, which is that somehow or another, uh, you know, body and mind drop off and, and, and we transcend that duality between ourselves doing the activity and simply being the activity. Um, and, and that's, you know, that's, that's really our practice. Um, you know, that, that is really our life is, is that, uh, that that continual unfolding or manifesting or that activity or energy or that awareness um, and, and being a part of that uh, and simply you know wholeheartedly going forth is that you know that's our life that's our practice so I, I really appreciated what you had to say about that as as well as many other things that you had to say <laughs> so thank you okay. Well, and that sense of self being involved, being the doer and the, uh, and the act being done, you know, that sense of self is, again, our, our need to, to freeze on to things. It's, it's kind of uh, stepping out of the action itself when we create the sense of doer. So when we lose ourselves in it, then we are just totally immersed in the activity. And all of a sudden, if you're a musician playing the saxophone, instead of you trying to accomplish something with, with the instrument, there's just the playing. It's a whole different practice to it then. We, when we can stop freezing things, trying to objectify it, groping for this and that, measuring this and that. Mm -hmm. and we can give that up. In our in our other group, my my Saturday group, our our Saturday group, mm -hmm. we've been reading um, uh, Trumpa's uh, mindfulness in action, which. I've read several of his books. I think this is the best written book of all of his books. It's not, it's not Meditation in Action, which is another name of another one of his books, but, mm -hmm. and I, I, you know, I was like, I always like his stuff, but um, we just read the chapter called 
Well, maybe it wasn't Jerusalem. Yeah, I see galaxies of stars and grains of sand. And um, it's, it's just amazing. You know, it's, it just fits in right to what, what, what you're talking about. And it, it, it paints this fabulous picture of how we have this jumble of things and thoughts and actions and, and feelings and da 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 and we try to all piece it together as this thing that we can carry with us or or or, or, or um, identify with or in a self-hating way or a self-aggrandizing <laughs> way whatever and um and it just it's just a beautiful job of showing how futile that is and how what a what a mess that is and how not but but at the same time you can't stop any of that and, and, and our mistake is is this constant need to identify you know identify and re-identify and re rework the identification and um, anyway yeah yeah just to be enlightened about the delusion to realize oh yeah <laughs> As long as we understand that's the way we're, we're uh, experiencing things, that, that's enough. That's all we need to do. Just know that. Just know it. Yeah, I like the way Dogen fit in the word allow. Yeah. What's, the, what's that phrase again? Say it again or read it again. Allow, allow the activities to, allow. Oh. Yeah. Huh. Well, anyway, you know what I mean. Yeah, good, why am I not? I don't, don't have that much I went through today. For some reason, I'm just, it's the line you repeated probably the most times during the talk. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you're right. Well, I should, I, should, I should be able to rattle it off, too. And I'm... Yeah. Was it the part about allowing the universe to unfold without expectations? No, it's about allowing activities to be, be the way or allowing something of that nature. But it, I thought allow came from Dogen, but now I'm starting to wonder. Maybe I threw that in. <laughs> yeah, I thought you were quoting Dogen when you were. Yeah, I, I thought so too. Go on. Anyway, well, then kudos to whoever threw that word in there. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. Well, plus, of course, that wouldn't have been the word Dogen used. Uh, that was the word caused Tanahashi and Taigen mm. selected. So, important to keep that in mind, too.
just uh, the the selection of the word awesome. We talked about that at the first talk. That uh, that that was a decision that Kaz and Tigan made because the uh, the Nishijima translation of Shobo Genzo, uh, rather than the awesome presence, they talk about the dignified presence. So you get a whole different feel for it. Dignified uh, kind of puts it into a, like a Japanese monastery and uh, real uh, more formal. Whereas the awesome presence, I much prefer because it really does point to the great way. What instills awe is you know, just infinity. I like both words. So, yeah, yeah, and again, that's where these having uh, having not getting fixed on any given expression, but to, the more you you throw at it, the the more it just kind of opens you up to see from uh, broader viewpoints. So, be worthwhile to get a bunch of uh, of uh, Japanese Dogen scholars in a room and start writing down what what would they use to <laughs> to translate that you probably come away going wow <laughs> really open it up for me mm -hmm. but you know the nature of language we get it in a certain version the words are fixed and that's what we we take in and work with but it, so it's important this uh, just like being uh, awakened to our delusion to realize that you know we're working with language. What is language? It's just pointing to something that that in its heart is indescribable. To always keep coming back and remembering. Oh yeah, yeah. Rather than just glomming onto it and and saying, oh yeah, that, that's beautiful words. Now, and in poetry, Symborska, at least if, if, uh, if I was fluent in Polish and could read the original, at least I'd be able to connect with what she was expressing, but I'm working with a translation. So again, it's the same as you know, what we're working with with Dogen, the trusting translator. So that's why I preface the way I was uh, really moved by uh, the, the hem of the leaf. You know, who knows what that Polish word was and the other ways you could take it. I may have just been going off on it in my own fantasy land. <laughs> it never touched, uh, never entered her consciousness even. <laughs> She'd probably be shocked. Oh, wow, <laughs> I didn't see that. It's not what I meant. <laughs> But that's okay, see? Even uh, you know, when I was a philosophy student way back in the day, I remember in, in aesthetics, there was big controversy about uh, what's the value of the artist's intentions. And there was a school, which I was kind of fond of, that said, well, it really doesn't matter. Once the work of art is out there, then it's, it's kind of in the great way, you might say. And, and you just, it's uh, open, open to, uh, to everybody's response to it. So, you know, a listener to a piece of music uh, should, should take it in uh, uh, without uh, 
feeling uh, some need to, to have a handle on what the artist was intending. I mean, having that awareness might help, again, open the work up for you, but it's not to define the work by that. It can't be defined. If you look at it that way, you've really, now you've made it a human piece of, of work rather than what art is capable of. It's capable of pointing to the great way. But uh, the only way that can happen is if we just open ourselves up to it completely and totally and don't take a any fixed view about it. Freud and Jung. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> they were on to something there. Yeah, they were. They were. I'd like to thank you, uh, Dean, for your talk today. I got a lot out of it and I learned a lot. Um, I think I uh, got a deeper appreciation for um, the activity that you talked about, the activity of the Buddhas and um, how, you know, it's easy to become fixed on the notion that uh, the Buddha is the Buddha and that's it. And that when you talked about Vairochana and moving forward through the Buddhas and that this is a movement that continues. Mm -hmm. um, and then we were talking short, you were talking shortly thereafter about how Blake is best known for being able to talk about the infinity in a very small way. And I think, you know, looking at activity in a very small way is looking at our small lives in a small way and not being able to open to what the awesome activity really is. We miss the awesome activity yeah. in the mundane, in the taking care of the dishes and so on. And, um, and then you talked a little bit about um, uh, clinging and attachment and that clinging and attachment prevent us from actually living. And that what we're really afraid of is dying. And I've heard, three talks in the last week um, by different teachers that are all talking about death and trying to aim beyond death, that, that the great activity occurs before, after, and during, that branching streams flow in the darkness, that there's activity going on and that we have this limited conception of what that activity is. And if we can open ourselves to the ultimate truth, we have a chance to stop clinging in the relative truth. Um, but I particularly liked the notion of clinging and attachment is not living. And that's moment by moment by moment. Right. And, and so my meditation in the last week was to practice with breath. And so on the in-breath, I would say living. And on the out-breath, I would say dying. Mm. Because um, one of the talks um, by Peter Coyote, he was talking about how, you know, well, one day you're going to take the breath out and that's going to be the last one. And I remember when my uh, husband took his last breath and I was, I was in the room with him um, in hospice and it was this very long, gradual breath out. And there was a doctor and a uh, resident in the room with me. And I, my reaction to that was to just speak out loud and say, 
well, that's a long exhale. Like I didn't know that he had just, I didn't realize that was the actual <coughs> death, but it was, it was that moment of, um, practice realization is what came to mind, is this notion that this was, it's a crossing over, but um, it's the point of living and dying and aiming beyond living and dying. And that that practice, like uh, Soil Rinpoche says in the Tibetan Book of Living and Dying, we can practice for that moment all our lives by watching how things come to conclusion. And by learning to let go of those things, each, like this meeting will end in a couple of minutes. And I remember being finished with a 21-day retreat at Green Gulch and some participants saying, I don't want it to end, you know, and, and Reb saying, no, now, now you go on. You, we all, we go on with the great activity. We go to the next thing that arises. And Suzuki Roshi saying, you know, we don't follow a schedule. We do what's next. We just, when the bell rings, we come to the zendo and, and we sit. And then when the bell rings, we get up and we do what's next. It is, it's just what's next it's until, that last, until that last breath. And then there's the ultimate realization. So um, it's been, a, it was really interesting to hear you use all these examples of how we can get into the ultimate um, experience by being immersed in the relative and that that immersion takes us out of the thinking mind that is so um, imprisoning, so finite and so tight, so closed to the open-heartedness of uh, the bigger reality. So thank you. Oh, thank you, Jay. Thank you. Oh. Remind, you know, what you said reminded me of the last line of the poem where she says, well, can't it just stop or da da da? And I do it all the time. For us to ask for it to stop is, is, me, is me misunderstanding existence. <laughs> if I understood existence, I wouldn't ask that question. I uh, wanted to stop all the time. <laughs> <laughs> this desire for like, to get off the world now, you know. <laughs> by, by the way, the chapter I suggested, nobody needs to read it now after what Gene said. <laughs> That was very beautiful. <laughs> I have to tell the story because the story just fits so well in with what with Dean was. Okay, so there's my ex-wife, um, who I'm still very connected with because we have four kids, da-da-da. Um, and so she bought this gift for my, really for my wife and I, because she knows we're both into Buddhism or whatever. And she bought these four beautiful, um, small little um, crystal balls on each side, inside of each little crystal ball is a, a Buddha. And one of them has a crystal Buddha inside of it. One of them has a normal Buddha inside of it. The other one has like a stupa of, of like river stones inside of it. And the other one has nothing at all. It just like, <laughs> no, or whatever. I love it. So, about a month ago, so we, I'm upstairs in the attic. We have a we have a zendo in the attic. So I'm up, and we we so we we put those on a little tiny shelf right as you come up the stairs at at the top of the stairs. And I was 
putting on my robe as I was, um, or adjusting my robe or something like that. I mean, just a bathrobe. <laughs> yeah. That kind of robe. Um, as I was walking out, and, and as I did this, I, I lifted up my arms and I knocked the shelf and all of them came down and crashed on the floor. And there was nothing Freudian about that, by the way. <laughs> it was very, very attached to these. Very, very attached to these. And um, anyway, but anyway. Um, so all of them broke except for one. And that was one with nothing in it. <laughs> so I put them all back. So I got the, the gold. Yeah. The, 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 each of the Buddhas were still in there, but the, the, the glass globes were all broken except, except for the one with nothing in it. So I thought, that wow, that's kind of cool. Wow. Well, after, yeah. after I said, oh, oh, fuck, or whatever I said. But, <laughs> yes. then I said, oh, <laughs> so I put them all back up there with the one bro broken, you know, got the jagged glass off, but, and, and with the one, uh, then my wife bought new ones because she thought, no, you can't do that. Right. <laughs> but anyway, I just thought that was a great story. Um, <laughs> I thought it fit what you were saying about the iconic. iconic yeah. 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 Beautiful. So sorry, I know we're way past time. <laughs> no. no. Anything else before? May our intention equally penetrate every being and place with the true merit of Buddha's way. Beings are numberless, I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. The Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it. Well, hope everybody's able.